Thanks so much for making it here today. Um, make sure you have your hand out because I'm going to walk through a couple things in there uh, for you. First thing I want to draw your attention to this morning is the green sheet, which is an evaluation sheet for build. Um, pretty simple. I, I, I'm not going to take you through piece by piece of the components of build, but want you just to be able to think broadly about build and, and uh, what was a blessing to you about it, what was what would you like to see changed, how would you like to see it be changed. Um, question there about maybe some of you don't even know that Wellspring meets at the same time as us, but some of you do know that it does and it made an impact on you and your family, uh, meaning that only one of you could be here. I want to know what you think about that. So if you can do that, just fill it out, try to keep it short and sweet for you so it wouldn't take a ton of time. Um, bring that next time we meet together, May 11th. That would be great, okay? Everything else you have in your handout today is um, either homework, the blue sheets, your homework for next time, like normal, uh, from Psalm 119 and, and a study from the book of Proverbs on the back side. And then you have a handout today that has like this up here on it, on the board drawn, and we'll look at that in a moment. So, here we are. You have almost made it through all of the build um, meetings that we've had. Um, and uh, what we want to do is let you know kind of how the, what the bigger picture is of what we're trying to do with men in the church. Obviously, the thing that never changes, uh, uh, we'll never stop doing this, and that is we won't stop calling men to unify around the build leadership disciplines of shepherd your heart, shepherd your home, um, step out into ministry with the gospel, uh, within the church, outside the church, um, qualification, the hermeneutic, handle the word of God, interpret it the way that, that um, we have convictions about, uh, and apply all of that at Grace Bible Church according to our vision and purpose. That will never change. We're never going to stop doing that, even though you've finished a year of build and um, you might be moving on. What, what else do we want men um, to experience at Grace Bible Church? Men who have been faithful in build, meaning... Faithful attendance, faithful in how they do their homework um, for a year. What we want them to do is we want to call them, um, invite them into kind of the next level of what we do with guys, which is called H3. I'm going to let Smed talk about that in more specifics, but um, H3 kind of does beyond build what build at least begins. It, it doesn't graduate you from the things that we do in build. There's going to be a reinforcement of some of the very same things, but H3 then takes you and, and focuses you more theologically and exegetically. And I'm going to let Smed talk about that. <coughs> After H3, um, men oftentimes will do build again and H3 again, build again, H3 again. They'll do it several times. And I'd like to encourage you to be a kind of guy who would think that way, um, that you can come back and get a refresher on this and, and, and hone in your skills, your spiritual disciplines that you're getting here. And then you can go back and uh, take part in H3 again, too, and, and uh, sharpen yourself theologically and, and in how to handle the Word of God. Um, we're looking for men that just over time to, to produce fruit by God's grace in men that they would want to have a burden to want to shepherd the church, um, to lead in the church, uh, maybe aim towards elder pastor ministry, um, church planning, missions. Whatever. So that's kind of the bigger track of what's going on. Smed, why don't you come on up, talk to us about what H3 is, 
and um, let you take as much time as you want. And I encourage you guys to ask questions, ask difficult questions, ask them about the, the diagram on the board. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> yes, Omri. What is that about? What is this about? Scott fiddling around with hermeneutical <laughs> stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, H three is uh, is nine months, uh, once a week uh, get together, and focusing on systematic theology, um, hermeneutics, reinforcing the build disciplines. Uh, H3 stands for heart, head, and hands, which is a, an old Puritan way of getting at uh, the right thinking, uh, right affections, and heart disposition towards God, and then service towards others. And one of the things that we will do in H3 is you spend uh, a good part of that nine months preparing one 20-minute sermon, which uh, I probably shouldn't tell you that. Some guys um, are so afraid of a 20-minute sermon that they uh, choose not to participate in H3. Um, but the idea is that we'll spend just about a, half a year um, teaching you how to walk through sermon preparation um, from a blank text in your Bible to, uh, to delivering a sermon. So hopefully it's a, it's a way that guys who have uh, never had opportunity to teach before can have an opportunity um, to see how to develop uh, a sermon that way. Uh, my, my favorite weekend in the year is, uh, is the H3 retreat, which is coming up here in a couple weeks, which uh, all the guys who have prepared their sermons uh, get to preach them to each other in the span of one weekend, um, which is really just a, a thrilling time. Um, it's something like a women's retreat. Everybody's crying, and it's really emotional and whatever else. But uh, sounds great. I, I'm not selling this very well, am I? Um, I want to read you 2 Timothy 2.2. Here's one of the things Paul was concerned about with the young Timothy, his protege in Ephesus. And his instructions about how to do church, he gave Timothy a lot of instructions. One of the instructions is found in 2 Timothy 2.2. And he says this, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Uh, it's an important uh, little passage with some important nuances in verb tenses and things like that. The, the things which you have heard from me. Uh, th- these are things that Timothy had already experienced from Paul. This is a, a body of information, a, a body of truth that Timothy had already received from Paul. And, and he had done so in the presence of many witnesses. That is, it was public information that Paul was teaching. And he says, Paul says, entrust these. There's a command. Timothy, you go and trust this body of truth that I've been teaching to faithful men. To faithful men. Uh, That's an interesting statement. He doesn't say, go create faithful men by teaching them theology. He says, go teach these things to men who are faithful. You see, one one of the really dangerous things Uh, that we tend to do is equate spiritual maturity with theological information. How much theological information I have is the measure of how spiritually mature I am. And and that's wrong thinking. Paul says, entrust these things to faithful men. There's a reason that build precedes H3. 
Um, because very dangerous man is the man who gets a lot of theological information and lacks spiritual maturity and begins to wield glorious, beautiful, great, good truths like a weapon, uh, like a a broad sword in a china shop. Um, That's that's not what we're to be. (laughs) We're to be spiritually faithful men, mature men, entrusted with truth. And then notice the verb tense at the end of the verse, who will be able to teach others also. Okay. What, what tense is that? Will be able to, is that past, present, or future? Yeah, future tense. Paul's getting at something here. Uh, you teach truth, you entrust truth to men who already are faithful so that they will be able to teach others also. This really is the process of of discipleship, of theological instruction, of passing on the baton of truth, which is the Word of God, generation after generation after generation. Um, I believe if if you equip the men of the church, you you feed the church, and not just in one generation, but in future generations. Um, One of the things that we want to do in H3 is not just teach theology. And by the way, a a year of once-a-week instruction in theology is an appetizer for a lifetime of study. Okay, you're not, if you're hoping to come to H3 and get the answers, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully what you'll get instead of the answers is a method for how to acquire truth for the rest of your life. Because one of the things we want to instill, you're, you're learning about the hermeneutic in this class. And uh, one of the ways that we want to teach theology is, is not necessarily, here's what you should believe, but here's how you should believe it. Here's why you should believe it. That is, your theology needs to be exegetical. That means it needs to come out of texts. And so the thing that we try to do in H3 is um, walk through how we derive what's true about God, about us, about angels, about the end, about the church, about anything else we're going to study from the Bible. Because we want God's words, rather than a system of theology imposing itself onto texts, We want the texts to rewrite whatever systems are there um, and allow God to have his freedom to say what he says in the way that he says it in his word. Um, So more than anything else, H3 is intended to be uh, a pathway towards learning about God for the rest of your life um, by by a method of acquiring that knowledge. Anyway, theology sometimes is a bad word. Um, Theology should be a good word. Right? Theos and Logos, it is the study of God. Uh, Jesus said, John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you and the one whom you've sent. Um, we'll be doing theology for all of eternity. It is just the study which ought to produce the adoration and love of God himself. And So that's the goal. Um, this last year, H3 took place on Wednesday mornings from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m., Um, Next year, uh, we'll probably for the first time have H3 on a weekday evening. Um, There are guys who have have wanted to take H3 for several years who have never been able to because it's either been on Saturdays or early mornings. And so this year, um, I know it will disappoint some and it will thrill others. Uh, We'll probably be on a weekday evening. So uh, anyway, that's uh, that's what H3 uh, sort of looks like. 
Any any questions about that? Yeah. Can you walk us through what a typical meeting? Oh yeah. So yeah. We can see kind of that so in a two-hour session on H3, we'll spend about 15 minutes at the beginning uh, dealing with various heart issues, uh, trying to reinforce, uh, build disciplines, but also addressing uh, just more personal and devotional things related to our hearts. Uh, we'll spend about an hour, 15 minutes or so, maybe an hour and a half, um, walking through some area of theology, all the ologies, angelology, uh demonology, eschatology, theology, pneumatology, hamartiology, all the ologies, um, the study of all the things in, the, in systematic theology. And then the last 15 minutes to a half hour, uh, we'll spend working on our hermeneutics. That is, how do we study the Bible? And we begin uh, the, the very first day with sentence diagramming. And uh, I, I believe sentence diagramming is a great tool to get out authorial intent. That is, what did God mean by what God said? Because God um, God paid attention to the words he used, the way those words are put together, uh, the context in which they're set, and the historical setting in which he wrote them. Uh, have you talked about LGH? So uh, the literal grammatical um, hermeneutic, a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic is, is what we employ. And, and we start employing that by sentence diagramming. And, and we start... Um, not in Ephesians 1 with Paul's you know, 19 line long sentence that you have to diagram with all of its little subordinating clauses and prepositional phrases and everything else. We start with Jesus wept. <laughs> and we go from there. So um, my goal in H3 is, is to not have guys be scared of grammar, but in some cases to, to kind of learn the English language for the first time. Um, to, to, to learn grammar because it's, because it's important. The if it's any comfort, all of you know and use grammar already. You just don't have labels for it. And so one of the things we do by diagramming sentences and talking about grammar in a text is give you some labels so that you can recognize what's in the text. So a uh, little bit of heart study, uh, a chunk of theological study, and a little bit of uh, hermeneutics application driving toward a sermon at the end of the year. How many of you guys have been in H3 already? Hands up. Some of you have done it. We're back here again. What's, what, what would you uh, testify about H3 in your life and the way God used it? I would say for me it was really, uh, it was difficult for me every single week, but the benefit of the sacrifice of going every week far outweighed um, the sacrifice. God really grew me exponentially um, in H3. And I was challenged far more in H3 with having to do prepping for a sermon. It was very much so a stretching opportunity for me. So I really enjoyed it. Nick? I just kind of up here and saying too, but uh, it's just the, the depth and breadth of God's word. Is just staggering. It's <coughs> and I just so, so enjoyed it. And uh, the relationships, the camaraderie that you build throughout the course of the year with people that you're taking it with is invaluable as well. Yeah. I intend to go this year if I can allow it. Special concessions for that. 
I, I know who's the gatekeeper. I'll, I'll put in a good word for you, Nick. So Ryan and I talk fairly often, and he's in my small group, and I'd say probably once every two weeks, Ryan will have a conversation with me that starts with, hey, Smed, I was diagramming this verse, and, and it's just like it's become recreation for him. believe it's life-changing because the meaning of a we want to know what what God means by what he says and MacArthur says it well if you don't have the meaning of the passage you don't have the passage Um, you don't have the scriptures unless you have the meaning of the scriptures and the meaning of a of any given text will never violate its grammar You, you you can't have a text meaning be different than what the grammar allows it's just the way language works and so it becomes really important to get to know how language works Doug. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think kind of this issue is kind of a peak behind the curtain, if you will. For me, I think where a lot of you guys that know me from history, it's, it's like, uh, you know, on Sunday mornings when we hear sermons from you guys, uh, it's like, wow, that was really neat how you made that passage come alive. And uh, it's almost like, you know, they were talking about, how did you do that kind of thing, you know? And uh, it takes years away for us to um, kind of go see how the magician does it, so to speak. Uh, but it's not magic. It's, it's not illusion either. But <laughs> uh, it's really about exploring, you know, how you know, did it now. And so, you know, when I hear a sermon, you know, now it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I can see where he, you know, worked through that and got to that point. Also, it gives me a measure of uh, huge respect for you guys for um, how much study you have to do to uh, produce a sermon. So, so it helps you appreciate that. Hmm. I think the best thing about it was I thought I had to learn Greek and Hebrew to fully understand the 
Bible. <laughs> and uh, just coming to learn the English and like actually being able to find out what the text is saying and what it means. And then you're actually able to go back and find the definition of those Greek Hebrew words. And you actually begin to understand the um, how Greek Hebrew works just by learning English. Any of you guys that were in H3, were any of you terrified by the assignment of preaching a sermon? Was that intimidating to any of you guys who have done it before? I think it was more intimidating to try 20 minutes, you know, yeah. start and finish it right. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing. I, a lot of guys will say, I, I, don't know how, I don't know how I could talk for 20 minutes in front of people about something from the Bible. And, and by the end of the process, you've got reams of paper and you're going, how do I condense this into 20 minutes? Yeah. The first year you did it, you didn't... I didn't tell the guys. There was not full disclosure to the men that they would be preaching the passage by the end. And so all these guys jumped in not knowing that they were going to do that. And some of them along the way were like... If I had known you were going to do that, I wouldn't. <laughs> and by the time it was done, they were thanking you. They were so grateful to have been able to do that. So. Yeah. Uh, as far as I know, there's only been one person in H3 that's never had an ahead of time and said, you don't have to preach a sermon. And the reason is because that person has a speech in I do. I I wanted to tell that story. I'm glad you did, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, I I, I get choked up thinking about that that morning because um, and 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 when I preach, um, when I prepare a sermon, I I think about that that brother, and um, I think about the power of God and the visitation of the Holy Spirit in a preaching event, um, in a powerful way, to do supernatural work in the hearts of people. I mean, preaching is just a Goofy thing, if you think about it. Some, some, some feeble, frail, puny-minded sinner is going to stand before other sinners and say, "Thus saith the infinite mind of the God of the universe." Um, and yet, that is what God has commissioned for the proclamation of His message. Um, it, there is a foolishness in preaching that God delights in, and that God visits with power. And um, that that forever will be a reminder to me of that. Right. Yeah, starts in September, goes for nine months, similar to the build schedule, but it's every week, uh, two hours each week, and this next year will probably be on a weeknight.
So something like a 7 to 9 or 7.30 to 9.30. I know that's an odd time. And it may not be right for some guys this year, but uh, I think that's what we're going to end up doing. If we get no takers, I will revisit that schedule. But I've, I've had three or four guys that have said for three years, I can't do H3 on Saturday morning or a weekday morning. So... And it's offered every year, so we're not going to stop doing it. So if, if that is something that doesn't work for you the next year, um, just know that it'll be around. So. Well, I, so I know you need to run. Um, is that, did you get to say what you wanted to say? I think so. All right. I get a year to make up for it. That's true. That's true. Um, what I thought was interesting, um, just an observation of what you guys talked about, and, and you all kind of led each other down the breadcrumb trail. Whatever one of you started talking about, the rest of you kind of capitalized on that. Um, and it's interesting that none of you kind of diverged from that. But but if you talk about what the main thing is that he spends the bulk of the time on in H3 is talking about theology. It's the bulk of your time. That's not what you guys talked about. You guys talked about how God's word became alive to you. And that's what makes theology then right and good and accurate um, is when God's word is like this. So that's like a, that's an interesting way to see that way God's been using it. So, um, so thanks for doing what you do and grateful for that. Amen. Yeah. When I take a step back and look at the past five years uh, that I've been at this church, uh, one of the things that H3 was just really uh, influential on that what it helped me to do was to find out why I believed what I believed from carefully expounding the text and it stopped me from leaning to be told by someone else why I believe what I believe. Or should, right? Uh, Calvin said this, or, you know, this is what you guys preached on. Um, theology stopped coming from good books and started coming from scripture primarily. Right. And, and secondarily, we want to benefit from. Um, Holy Spirit illumination throughout the church history. But um, there better be more than one man in a church who knows how to study the Word of God. And um, that's what we're after here. And um, so, by God's grace and His kindness, I pray that He'll keep blessing that ministry. And All right. Guys, let's let's pray, and then we're going to give you some small group time. We're going to call things back in about a half an hour, about um, 10 till, okay? Uh, we have lots to work through today. We'll give you a, a little bit of time, a small group, but let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, revealing yourself to us through your word. And um, Lord, it is a joy in our hearts now um, to open your Bible and to come and look for you, find you, discover you, be humbled by what we see, rejoice over what we see concerning you. Father, we're also humbled concerning what we see about our sin and our nature, um, the the rebelliousness within us that just um, will not um, fade away yet. Um, and Lord, we are humbled as we see your Son 
who um, have so much joy with you that he was willing to exchange it and endure the cross and despise the shame that was mine, that was ours upon him. Lord, we marvel at the apex of Revelation, which is the gospel of your son Jesus. Father, the implications from your word for how we should live now uh, because of the gospel of your son is, is profound. Lord, would you please help us today, even what we do here today. Father, help it, um, cause it to help us live in accordance with what you've made us to be. What we are and what we must become um, need to come together. And um, Lord, we need to be godly men. So we pray, Lord, that you would use even our discussion today on hermeneutics in such a way that it would strengthen our our character because we'll have your word opened and we'll be looking for you and we will be discovering your meaning in your texts. So, Father, bless our time together this morning and um, thank you for these men, the gift that they are from you. Pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless our day. In Christ's name, amen. Let's uh, pray. Let's ask God to bless our time as we look at um, two important, actually four important passages. Two in Ephesians and two in the Old Testament that correspond with it. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And, and again, Lord, we just, what a, what a privilege it is. We live in a day in which we have multiple Bibles on our shelves. Um, they sit around, they, they sit in our car. Lord, I have, a co- I have a Bible in my car that I just keep there. And now they're on our phones, they're, the Bible's on our iPads, our computers, or the Bible is everywhere. And for generations, believers um, could not even have access to a copy of your word in their language because the church kept it from them. Lord, what a crime and um, how that must have been so displeasing to you. And yet here we are on, on such a, an abundant place, so different than that, Lord. And, and are we taking advantage of your word? Um, I pray, God, that we would. And that this morning we would see uh, the riches of your glory in your word and the impact that it makes on us when we interpret it well. So, God, I'm, this morning may be introducing new ideas to these men. Um, some of these ideas may be um, conflicting with other ideas that have already been set. I pray that you would help us to walk humbly with each other and that, God, we would um, just submit ourselves to you and to your word and that, God, you would have your way with our hearts. Thank you for your word. We sit under it now. We don't want to sit in judgment of it. We want it to sit over us, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, you got your handout before you. We're going to be in Acts. I'm sorry, we're not going to be in Acts. We're going to be in Ephesians. So if you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 6 first. We're going to talk about a very, very difficult subject in regards to hermeneutics and just regards to the way the Bible is put together, and that is the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. Um, if, if anything happens today, what I hope you'll get is, is, is maybe just a, a, another paradigm, another way to think about the, the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, maybe outside of what you've thought and, and maybe constrained yourself to be, 
Um, in other words, if there, just to pick maybe an arbitrary set of numbers, if there's only two ways in your thinking currently that the New Testament can utilize the Old Testament, I want to challenge that and say there might be a third way. And um, I'll be introducing that to you. It might be upsetting to you. It might be comforting to you. I don't know. Uh, but here we go. Um, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore... And then you have, probably in your text, this set out showing that the translators believe this is Paul utilizing Old Testament text. Having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What I want to do this morning is take two of those, take verse 14 and verse 17, and look at the Old Testament use of those. You say, why not verse 15? It would just be too long if I also do verse 15. So I'm going to pick verse 14 and verse 17 and take you back to Isaiah in that. Okay? Question? We're okay? Okay. So what I'm going to show you... Yes? Have you done this? Be- no. So if you're looking for it, you won't find it. Um, example, I'm going to give you two examples. And this is what your diagram is about. If you kind of want to have that out on the desk too, where you can kind of see that. I know this looks like gibberish uh, and madness. Um, it is. Um, it was in here, and I just put it outside so you can see it and join in with me. I'm going to give you two examples. Um, example one is... Is, is read, that is Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 59, and Paul is utilizing that in Ephesians 6 in some way. So uh, the, the markings here represent, I, I just went without letters, I just went without words, just to go with symbols to show you something. Okay, here's the Old Testament text, okay, uh, written as it is. In Isaiah, or I'm sorry, in Ephesians 6, Paul accesses a part of that text. If you'll notice, that's what I try to show with the diagram. Okay? He accesses a part of it. He doesn't quote all of it. He doesn't allude to all of it. It's a partial And quote is, is it could be debatable in some people's eyes. Is he actually quoting it? Or is he influenced by it in some way? Which way is he influenced? But it's partial. It's a partial collection or an allusion to an Old Testament text. The other one we'll look at is the connection between uh, in, uh, in Psalm 68, verse 18, and Ephesians 4, 8. Here's the Old Testament text with symbols, just to show you symbols, okay? What Paul does in Ephesians 4, 8 is probably one of the most troubling uh, on the surface because he, he takes a good part of it, and it's exactly the same. Okay, this is the same as this, this is the same as that, the last part's the same, and then just to show you how divergent it is, I just use pound sign and A and B. I mean, he just 
it looks like on the surface, he just flat out changes it. What in the wide world of sports is the New Testament doing with the Old Testament? Okay? So those are the two examples we're going to look at. We're going to start with Ephesians 6 first. Okay? All right. You may have questions as we go along. I encourage you to, to raise your hand and ask them. Knowing where we're going, I may choose to postpone answering it, thinking that we're probably going to get to that. Um, so if I do that, I, I hope that's not offensive to you. Um, but if I don't end up answering your question, like I thought I might, just raise your hand again and ask it again. Okay? All right. Let's start up at the top. Example 1, A and B, using Isaiah 11 and 59 and Ephesians 6, 14 to 17. Um, where did this imagery of armor come from for Paul? Many people would say, uh, in fact, you read through the commentaries, they'll say, Paul is writing this, you know this is a prison epistle. Um, he's writing it um, under the guard of a Roman soldier. Paul has been chained to Roman soldiers on numerous occasions. And so some suggest that he was influenced to move from a lesser to a greater argument. He's sitting there looking at the, the armor of a Roman soldier, and he's kind of going, you got armor, you should see the armor of God. Lesser to greater. Okay, that's what some would suggest. And, and I think that's a good observation. And I don't think that's completely out of the, the question. Um, but at best, it's, a, it's only a part of the explanation for why he's writing this. It doesn't supply a, a full answer, a complete explanation. So the question that I would ask is, Paul primarily motivated by looking at something lesser and thinking of and moving to something greater? Or is there a better explanation for where the imagery came from? I don't like what I said next in the bold line. Um, Paul's illustration moves from lesser to greater. Um, moves not from lesser to greater, but from greater to lesser. He doesn't move from greater to lesser. Just scratch that last part off. He is just already at the greatest. And... He's just going to unfold that, okay? I think a better explanation for where this imagery came from for Paul is it came from Scripture. Paul's, the whole reason he's talking about putting on the armor of God is because he is a biblical man. And in particular, he's considering Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 59. Paul's a biblical thinker. His own thoughts are formed and shaped and shaded and influenced by the Old Testament. What's motivating Paul is divine thought. Now, the divine thought is coming to him, uniquely to him, in two ways. That it doesn't come to you and me. Divine thought is coming to Paul through already revealed texts, the Old Testament. But, as Paul is writing this, divine thought is coming to him also through what? Inspiration. He's writing scripture. All right, we only get one of those access to divine thought, right? Um, so that's just the kind of man that Paul was. He is motivated by divine thought. And Isaiah 11 and 59 reveal that, get this, we'll see this in a moment. Isaiah 11 and 59 reveal that Messiah and Yahweh have armor. Have armor. They wear it. So Paul's not moving from a lesser armor in order to highlight a greater armor. He's already fixed on the greatest armor of all. And he's just telling him about it. Alright, so now, let's consider the context and the influence of Isaiah 11 on Paul's thinking. So now you need to go back. Um, if you want to, you can kind of keep a spot in Isaiah, or I'm sorry, in Ephesians 6. But go back to Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5. 
if we know anything from what we've been talking about in regards to um, how to handle God's word, it's that we want each text to be able to speak clearly on its own. Right? Momentarily speaking completely on its own, apart from the rest, we're not going to keep it separate from the rest of the text of Scripture, but we want to let it have its day telling us why it's there. Okay? What it means. So Isaiah 11. Let's consider the context and the influence of that and what it might have had on Paul's thinking. Um, Let me read verses 11, 1 to 5 for you. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist or truth the belt about his waist. Um, when you look at the broader context of Isaiah 10 and flowing into chapter 11, it is very clear that the Davidic dynasty, okay, Israel with her king and her sons of David, um, uh, appeared as decimated as the Assyrian army will be decimated. Um, the, the idea of, of Israel and the Davidic dynasty being decimated is found in in the idea of chapter 11, verse 1, that a shoot will spring forth, a a branch will come forth. It's the idea of when you cut down a tree and all that's left is a stump, it looks like it's done. Until you come back a a little bit later and what's shooting out of the the stump? A, A shoot, a branch. And so the idea is the Davidic dynasty appears to be as decimated as the Assyrian army will. The Assyrians will be gone. Um, But there's a branch, and and the branch is a title for Messiah. Shoot, an idea, a concept of illustrating Messiah. The Messianic king will come even though everything looks bleak now. The coming Messiah will reign with the fullness of God's spirit. Look at verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, that branch. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh. Um, Look at verse 3. When he comes, he won't have to rely on the natural ways that kings know things by looking with their eyes and listening with their ears because this one will just know. Look at verse 3. He will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make decisions by what his ears hear. That's just saying he already knows. He doesn't have to operate like other kings. He supernaturally knows everything and acts accordingly. And in verse 4, with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Messiah um, knows that Israel has primarily neglected justice um, and compassion. If you read the prophets, that's what they're constantly, what Israel is constantly being rebuked for. You have neglected the widow, the the, the offspring, uh, the the, the um, uh, orphan. I could not think of the word. Thank you. Um, the, the the one who is defenseless has been 
not cared for. And Messiah will come in verse 4 and he will take care of all of the afflicted. Um, Verse 4, the latter part, and with the breath of his lips he will slay. I'm sorry, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Um, The wicked, when Messiah comes, will be um, under his boot, finally. They will be slayed. Um, Verse 5, Messiah will be prepared for that conflict and that judgment with righteousness and faithfulness. Verse 5, righteousness and faithfulness, or truth. And he's going to wear them like armor. Uh, a warrior king, his, one of his most important parts of his equipment was his belt, because he could gather up what his robe uh, would have been in his way. He'd gather it up and he would tuck it into his belt, and all of his other, not all of his other weaponry, but a lot of his other weaponry would then be attached to his belt. And for him, it's righteousness. For him, it's truth or faithfulness. Faithfulness to what has been declared by God. So what we're finding here is that in 1 to 5, there's a day coming, according to Isaiah 11, 1 to 5, in which the nations of the earth will know Messiah's judgment and his justice in a way that they have not yet known it. Um, and when he comes victorious and reigning on that day, he will be wearing a belt of righteousness and faithfulness, which can also be translated truth about his ways. Um, I think this is what is filling Paul's mind back in Ephesians 6. Um, that's the, the, the Isaiah 11 passage. That is what you find in chapter 6, verse 14, having girded your loins with truth. Okay? Um, go to Isaiah 59. Let's look at that passage and see how Paul is might be influenced by Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, verse 17. So we're going to consider the context surrounding Isaiah 59, 17 and its influence on Paul's thinking in verses 14 and 17. Look at verses uh, 1 to 8. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He's speaking these words to Israel. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. I mean, from your hands to your fingers to your lips to your tongue, Israel's in big trouble. No one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and they speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adders' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies and from that which is crushed a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Um, Israel is captive Israel at this point and they are languishing Um, because of her eagerness to sin. But even still, experiencing such humiliation like that and discipline from Yahweh, the the great hope is found in verse 1. 
They are not beyond the reach of Yahweh. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But this is the problem with you. You've been eager to sin, but you're not beyond hope. In verses 9 down through 15, um, Israel recognizes that her own sins and rebellion have caused her demise, and so she's experiencing all kinds of injustices and stumbling, and there's, there's no one to help her. Look at verses 9 to 15. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, Israel says, but behold darkness. We, we hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. Whenever I read that text, I think of um, uh, being in the earthquake in Northridge, going into a, an apartment complex to find a friend and make sure he was all right. He was on the first floor, and the inner hallway was... Um, it was an inner hallway that you walked into the building and then all the doors opened to this inner hallway and, and all of the lights were out and um, you, you couldn't see and there were still lots of tremors and, and aftershocks and it was terrifying and I can remember knowing that he was in apartment 16 or whatever but you couldn't see and so what you had to do is you had to grope along the wall and as you ran your hand along the 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 sheetrock the the plaster wall all the paint was cracked and the chips were coming up against your hand and you'd get to a door and the only way you could tell what number it was is they had stamped on the put those um, numbers on the door and you could feel it and it, it was groping along the wall like blind men we grope like those who have no eyes we stumble at midday as in the twilight among those who are vigorous we are like dead men all of us growl like bears and we moan sadly like doves we hope for justice but there is none we hope for salvation but it is far from us for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the lord and turning away from our god speaking oppression and revolt conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter yes truth is lacking and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey what a a hopeless condition for them there's no one to help them yet Yahweh has seen And it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice and that there was no man to intercede. Look at the last half of verse 15. The Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, verse 16, and he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. So what did Yahweh do? Yahweh took upon himself to change Israel's condition. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. And Yahweh Yahweh is armed heavily for the task of delivering his people and for taking vengeance on his enemies. Look in verse 17. He put on, Yahweh did, Yahweh put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He is heavily armed. Yahweh is in this day. The last half of verse 17. um, He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. 
wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will make recompense. He's going to judge. And so, verse 19, they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, that's the east. And he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of Yahweh drives. Worldwide worship of Yahweh will be inspired because of his awesome judgment and deliverance that he executes. This is going to be a a divine payback day. Verse 20, a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgressions in Jacob, declares Yahweh. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, not from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says Yahweh, from now and forever. And these are new covenant realities for Israel. Yahweh is going to clothe himself for battle um, in a way that the enemies of Yahweh have not yet seen on this earth. It's reasonable here to assume that this is what is filling Paul's mind. Paul's a biblical thinker. And so he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Back in chapter 6. Okay, let's go back to Ephesians 6. Here's the big question with a a big answer, or maybe a, a, a helpful answer. How might Paul be using these texts? I'm going to give you three general options Um, I think two of them are are connected. The first two are connected and um, are probably the ones that are most common to us. Sometimes in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit designed the inspired or expired words of the New Testament writer to be, number one, the direct fulfillment of an Old Testament scripture. Sometimes that happens. The New Testament writer will be utilizing an Old Testament text to show us that it's direct fulfillment. Okay. Um, for instance, um, Old Testament text concerning the birth of Messiah. Old Testament text concerning the suffering of Messiah. Uh, New Testament writers write showing that there's been fulfillment of those kinds of things. I think it's difficult in Ephesians 6 to see um, Ephesians 6 as a fulfillment of either Isaiah 11 or Isaiah 59 when you take those contexts in their natural meanings. Uh, Just the normal use of language taken normally there. Um, At other times, number two, the Holy Spirit offers an explanation of an Old Testament scripture. At other times in the New Testament, what what will happen is the New Testament writer will just be simply providing commentary on what an Old Testament text means. Okay, An interpretation of it a commentary on it without saying that it's fulfilled in the text. And I'm not really sure that's even what's going on if Paul is trying to explain to us what the original context meant for Israel. I'm not sure that's what he's doing in Ephesians 6. All right, so then um, what on earth is he doing? If he is doing that, by the way, if he's saying, now you, you believers in, in Messiah, you put on the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness. And by the way, that's what God meant. If that's what he's doing, then he's assigning a new meaning to that text because you would not read those original texts with the normal use of language and conclude that anyone was wearing that armor except Messiah and Yahweh. 
So I think that's a challenge. So then, what is Paul doing? Well, direct fulfillment and explanation of an Old Testament text are not, I would offer to you, the only ways that the Holy Spirit can use words in the Old Testament through a New Testament writer like Paul. In fact, I would propose to you that oftentimes the Holy Spirit uses Old Testament ideas, Old Testament phrasing, Old Testament concepts, Old Testament themes, Old Testament truths that are in the mind of the biblical writer like Paul simply to inspire new revelation that has never come before. So number three, the Holy Spirit offers new revelation and truth that was unknowable up to that point that the New Testament writer wrote. So what are your options? And there could be more options we need to look at. And by the way, this will be a study for the rest of your life, watching how the New Testament um, quotes the Old Testament. And by the way, you are depending greatly on translators, aren't you? To tell you, because what, what my NAS does that I just automatically accept without thinking carefully is they put it in all capital letters and I just assume that, oh yeah, of course. That's the way Paul wrote. When he got to a part when he was referring to the Old Testament, he started writing in capital Greek letters. No, I mean the translators are helping you see that there's some there's an Old Testament passage that corresponds to this. Um, and you should know that and be aware of that. There's an Old Testament connection here. Now, you should stop at that point and at each single one of those in the New Testament, you should ask yourself, okay, now what's going on there? Okay? And your options are direct fulfillment. Your options are New Testament's offering commentary on it, telling us what that passage means. Or... Is it possible that the Holy Spirit is utilizing ideas and themes from that, even partial quotes from it, to inspire new text without changing the original? Okay? Biblical men thinking biblical thoughts like Paul did, I think that's what's going on. Um, So, our hermeneutic at Grace Bible Church constrains us to an explanation, guys, that doesn't override original meaning. Okay? We're constrained by a hermeneutic that doesn't, a way of explaining this that doesn't override original meaning. Okay? That's just the way language works. When do you communicate and you want somebody to override your original meaning? Okay? We want to be constrained by a hermeneutic that doesn't and a way of explaining this that doesn't override original meaning. So let me offer some things to you to think about. Paul, what does Paul know? If he's reading Isaiah 11 and he's reading Isaiah 59, Paul knows that both Messiah and Yahweh have a day for deliverance of Israel and a day of personal victory on this earth that will be unparalleled. The world will experience the victory of Messiah in a way that has never yet experienced it. And Paul, as a New Testament writer, who's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit now, is is revealing in Ephesians new truth for the church. And it's this, that God's very armor that he will wear in victory on that great day yet to come, that very armor now in this day 
is given to New Testament believers to put on in their daily fight against sin. Isaiah 11 did not communicate that. Isaiah 59 did not communicate that. I think that is what Paul is communicating, and that is a new thought that does not override the original thought, but it stands next to the other thought. Okay, Trevor. So, like, I guess this specific passage of Ephesians where Paul, like, when we're going to look at it in a second here, actually quotes the text, uh-huh. right? It's like, and it actually says this here, but in, in this passage, he's just, just writing and using words that we can reference back and say, hey, we see this in Isaiah, but not like Paul says, and as it says in Isaiah, and then he quotes it. So how, like, where, I guess, in these three interpretive like, how does that fit into where, like you said, how do we know for sure it doesn't mean he's looking at the Roman guards? Um, is that just a reference based off because you've read something? But, you know, Isaiah, we can see similar things, or yeah. I, I see that differently. Yeah, I... Um, like, I just, guess just being different than what we're going to look at next. Where, yeah, and, and what, I'm, what I'm proposing to you here is, is on these passages, and I think this is such a, a, um, a nuanced subject in the New Testament that you need to examine each individual passage on its own um, because you need to look at um, the formula that the New Testament writer will say leading up to quoting an Old Testament text. So um, I'm speaking specifically to this one here and to the Ephesians 4 one, and there may be, these may not fit other things that are going on. There may be other explanations or nuances of, of, of the explanation. So um, I'm confident to speak to these two. Um, how, what's your question? How do you how do you how do you know he's talking about this from Isaiah? Well, I guess just um, like reading this, even starting off, nowhere in this passage of Ephesians, like even though he uses terms like this, mm-hmm. come to salvation, and we can allude back to Isaiah or different passages and say, hey, like this, these are words are used here. Um, how that's, I guess, from my own interpretation, and even as we talked earlier about the straw man, the guy who wants to allegorically interpret passages however he wants. Or spiritualize them. Yeah. Spiritualize them however he wants. I see this kind of becoming one of those texts where um, the text itself doesn't specifically allude or say something, but somebody just says, well, I read something similar in Isaiah, so that's exactly what Paul is thinking about here. Instead of saying, hey, this seems like it could be coming from that. We don't know for sure if yeah. he doesn't say it. But that's different than when he quotes like in Isaiah or Ephesians 4, you know, yeah. the song, and he says, here's what it says. And so now we have some direct correlation between this and yeah. looking back. And I guess I'm just... Yeah, I, I think regardless of whether he says at the beginning, just as it says, and then he quotes an Old Testament text, versus this as he kind of just runs into it, when he quotes it at, um, closely enough, uh, it's it's pretty... Sh- I mean, th- these are... If, if you were to read Girding Your Loins with Truth... You, you would probably only think of one thing if you were an Old Testament savvy person. You would think of these Old Testament passages that he quoted. And so I don't think there's much doubt um, that he's... Two things are true. He's, he's influenced by the idea in, old, in the Old Testament. Well, I mean, that's just it. I mean, he's influenced by the thinking of it. I don't know how else to say it. Um, I don't think that means that it's less of a connection between this text and the Old Testament compared to the Ephesians 4 one, 
um, that would assume that the only way that it can be a valid connection is that there would have to be some kind of a statement made beforehand, thus says the scriptures, and then quoting the Old Testament or, or something like that. And I, I'm not prepared to say that. I think a New Testament writer has the freedom to run into an Old Testament text without saying that he's going to run into an Old Testament text to draw a legitimate correlation between them. The question is, is what is the relationship between them? And that's what you need to look at case by case. So let's keep going. Hang on to that and see if what we talk about doesn't um, unfold a little bit, okay? Um, so God on that day that he spoke of in Isaiah 11 and 59, um, there's going to be a day where Messiah is going to have his victory. Paul's meaning in Ephesians 6 is in this day. It's a command for believers in this day to stand firm against God's enemies, the devil, the schemes of the devil, to stand in that same armor. Okay? That New Testament meaning that exists in Ephesians 4 does not undo this original meaning of Isaiah. This is not a reinterpretation or a signing of a new meaning back here. This meaning stands, and it means what it means. And it's pointing to a day that this world has not yet known, where Messiah is going to reign supremely. And what we have is a new inspired text that God brought through the Apostle Paul that he was influenced by God's divine thought already revealed. So God combined two sets of, of his own divine thought, that which was already revealed and that which he is revealing in Paul, in Paul's day, to reveal a new text that has its own unique meaning that, yes, accessed part of what was said here. That, because it, if your rule that you set up is, if you access a part of a quote, you're automatically interpreting, you're automatically in fulfillment language, then you're going to have a huge problem. Because now you're reassigning meaning back here. So you have to be careful. And I'm, what I'm proposing for you is, is an, an explanation of how is it that an old, a New Testament writer might be thinking in regards to uh, utilizing an Old Testament text. Okay? Let's keep going here. Um, what are the implications of this? of the Holy Spirit offering new revelation and truth. Again, the Old Testament meaning by no means is undone by the New Testament writer. But it actually continues to stand on its own, pointing to its own unique uh, meaning. It's still awaiting its unique fulfillment if it's prophetic. The New Testament passage, which borrows ideas and truths and realities and words and maybe even quotations from that Old Testament passage, the New Testament passage equally stands with it. And the New Testament writer's new inspired concept, which borrowed some of that Old Testament language, they just stand equally next to each other in the canon of Scripture. One says what it says, the other says what it says. But it does not mean that it has to be a direct fulfillment of the Old Testament passage necessarily. It may not even be an explanation of the Old Testament text that still awaits its future fulfillment. Now, what difference does this make? Daniel, I'll, I'll let you ask your question, then I'll go to the next part. Specific instances in the New Testament, or is this something that 
you know, you just come across them reading left to right, and you've, yeah. you know, and you've studied kinds of words there, yeah. in general, just... You mean a list of where they... The a list of where the, where they all are? Yeah, as far yeah. as the uh, ideas and concepts. concepts. It, uh, I'm going I'm to answer that and back up further than what you probably wanted. First thing, again, is, is we know that... Um, the New Testament writers did not write in such a way that they um, wrote with capital letters letting us know. Now, in some cases, that they were quoting an Old Testament text. Um, in some cases, they do say, just as Isaiah says, and then they quote, or just as Jeremiah said, and they, they do. And so then we know in that sense. So what we're basing are, if you're going to make a list, you're going to start with passages like that that you're going to know clearly because the author tells you he is. And then the rest of them, you're going to be dependent upon um, the manner of an arrangement of the words sounds like an Old Testament one. And NAS helps you by capitalizing those. But again, I'm, I'm trusting somebody else's conclusion on that. And there may be times where they choose, well, it sounds like he might be quoting the Old Testament, but we're not going to capitalize it because we're not really sure. I may feel differently about that than they did and think that, well, they, they should have capitalized it. So... There's a great big book uh, written by Beale and uh, I forget the other guy's name. Carson and Beale edited it. And it's called a New, Te- a New Testament, a commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. And it tries to deal with every single one of these. And um, gives you all kinds of ideas of, of what they're thinking. You might agree with them. You might not agree with them. But you will find a big old long list in a big old long book. Okay. All right. Now, what difference does this make? What difference does this make in Ephesians 6.10? Paul's use of Messiah's and Yahweh's armor in connection to the believer in the church. What should that do? You find out now that what Paul's thinking of is, oh my goodness, Messiah's going to be wearing armor. Yahweh's going to be wearing armor. And he's telling me to put that on? I I need to put that on? what, What does that do for your confidence in your daily living and fighting against sin. Oh my goodness! Does it make a difference? It makes a huge difference in the text. In my pursuit of holiness of life in the face of the devil and all of his henchmen who would love to see me stumble, I get to put on whose armor? Messiah's. In some way, wow. If Messiah and Yahweh are going to be victorious someday wearing that armor in a battle that goes beyond anything I'll ever know personally, but I get to put that on today? Oh my goodness. What difference does that make in understanding how he's using, maybe alluding to an Old Testament text? The impact is huge. Listen, the confidence you gain from that understanding is far surpasses any confidence you would get by Paul sitting in a prison cell going, Roman soldiers got armor. Yeah, we've got a breastplate too. You might gain some confidence from that correlation. It's nothing compared to the correlation. It's Yahweh's armor that I put on. And also, I think that this should make the New Testament believer in the church long for the day when Messiah will wear that armor. Doesn't this make you want... Look, the whole point is not that I get to wear this armor, period, end of the sentence, nothing more to be said. 
Because those Old Testament texts tell us there's a day coming when He's going to wear it. So yes, thank you. I get to wear it now. I've got tons more confidence given to me to fight against my sin. But you know what? That's not the best thing. The best thing is not that I get to wear the armor. The best thing is Messiah is going to wear that armor. Yahweh is going to wear that armor. And the world's going to bow to both. I want that. So yes, as I put on the armor today, what am I thinking about? Thank you for this armor today. I can't wait to see you wear it. God, I can't wait to see you come and wear your armor. Guys, this makes a huge difference if you let texts stand and say what they say and not overwrite them. Guys, I'd much rather see Messiah wear his armor. What about you? But you know what today I'll do? I'll put it on. I'll put it on. There's example 1A and 1B. Let's go through example 2A and 2B. Psalm 68 and Ephesians 4. Go back to Ephesians 4. Watch what Paul does in Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, grace was given. Grace is a giving what is undeserved, right? And then the verb given, according to the measures of the measure of Christ's gift. Three times in this verse he talks about grace, given, and gift. I wonder what he's thinking about. Okay. Now watch what he does. He's, so he's thinking about grace that is given and it's Christ's gift. It's Messiah's gift. He's thinking of that. Now what does he do next for the next three verses? Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Okay, so there's gifts again. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except also that he has descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who has ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. To me, when I, I remember when I got to Ephesians 4, I was like, I have no idea what... What is his train of thought? He, talks, he starts talking about gifts and then he doesn't talk about the gifts. At least not first. So gifts are mentioned in verse 7, a little bit in verse 8, and then in 8 to 10, all the focus is on the one who gave the gifts. Ah, interesting. So Paul makes clear that the gifts given to the unified members of his body, that's Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, the unified members of his body, he makes clear that the gifts given to them are more about the greatness of the victorious Messiah than they are about you and me. That's what he's doing. They're given to make a statement about the ascended Messiah. Something is on Paul's mind that generates this thinking, that illustrates that point. What is it? It's Messiah's loftiness. Messiah's exaltedness has uh, been solidly on Paul's mind throughout this whole letter. Ephesians 1.10. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Messiah, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Wow. He's thinking of everything one day getting summed up in Messiah. It doesn't matter if it's on earth. It doesn't matter if it's in heaven. That's a pretty lofty view of Messiah. How about verse 20 of Ephesians 1? He brought this about in Messiah when he raised him from the dead and seated Messiah at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then he talks about his exaltedness in two different ways. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So he's above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then verse 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet. 
and gave him as head over all things to the church. So he talks about the exaltedness of Messiah this way. He's above everything and everything else is below him. So Messiah's exaltedness is clearly on Paul's mind. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Messiah Jesus. I mean, Paul is overwhelmed with Messiah's greatness. So Paul's made it very clear that Messiah is supremely victorious in God's plan of salvation and in It is seen in his ascending into heaven. That's proof. So Paul thinks on the connection between Messiah's great victory that's been evidenced by his ascension on high and gifts happen to be connected to that. Did you know that? Listen, Messiah's been exalted in a way that you'll never know. And by the way, he gave gifts when he did that. That's the idea. Messiah's great. Messiah's above all. Everything's below him. Did you know you have gifts? Messiah is great. You have a gift. It's like the emphasis is all on the greatness of Messiah. And you have a gift. Did you know that? He gave gifts to the church. What has influenced Paul to think this way? The whole concept or theme of Messiah's victory in Ephesians is actually within a line of trajectory that has been set out already in Scripture. Did you know that? Of other victories that God achieved in the past for his people. Something similar to this great victory has occurred at other times in the past in God's redemptive plan. And Paul knows this. Why? Because Paul loves the Bible. He loves the Old Testament and he's read it and he's read it and he's studied it. Being overwhelmed by Messiah's great victory and ascension, Paul leans on Old Testament references, I think, to punctuate Christ's supreme victory which is in the long line of victories that God has um, already accomplished. So let's go back to Psalm 68 and let's look at it, okay? Psalm 68, let's consider the context. If you want, keep your um, self, your spot in Ephesians 4. Go back to Psalm 68. What is he doing? Let's look at this context. The psalm um, reflects a kingly practice that took place. Uh, you, can, you can watch the kingly practice take place back in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when David finally brings the ark up to Jerusalem and uh, there's a huge parade as they come and it's a, they ascend up into Jerusalem, uh, which is a mountain-like city, uh, to the tent where they've got it and they bring it and there's this huge procession that takes place. And the psalm reflects something of that kingly practice. Okay. Um, in verses 15 and 16, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. Which mountain is not God's? Yeah, all the mountains are God's. And this one, Bashan, with all of its many peaks, it's a mountain of God. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy? What does the ESV say? Why do you look with fury? Hatred. Hatred? Wow, that is strong. Why do you look with hatred, O mountains with many peaks? Which, which mountain with many peaks is he talking about? Bashan. So he's saying, you mountain Bashan with your many peaks. Why are you looking with hatred on at the mountains which God desired for his abode? Where's God's abode at this time? Jerusalem, where the tent is. 
at the mountain which God has desired for his abode. Surely Yahweh will dwell there forever. Okay? So the psalm expresses boasting in Yahweh because of his care for Israel, because of his majesty overall. Um, David is writing this. The mountain of Bashan with its many peaks was thought to be something of a rival set of mountains to the special mountain of God that was chosen for the special presence of God. That's what we saw in verses 15 and 16. What about verse 17? The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. Yahweh was a mighty warrior with a stunning army of chariots, uncountable. And um, verse 17b, the Lord, Yahweh, is among them as at Sinai, in holiness. Oh, another mountain. Another mountain is mentioned. And Yahweh was there in victory. He, he's, he's at the mountain of God, his special mountain, where he is going to dwell. He's there in victory like he was at this other mountain, Sinai, in victory. So he was on lofty mountain after lofty mountain, ascending in victory. A climactic description of the victorious ascension of God at Mount Zion in, in Jerusalem is given in verse 18. Look at it. You, Yahweh, have ascended on high. You have led captive captives, your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that Yahweh God may dwell there. There are victory themes. The victory theme is everywhere in this, associated with this ascending Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It says, ascending on high, that means he's victorious. He's leading captives, that means he was victorious. And he received gifts or the spoil of war. He is victorious. Only people who are victorious receive the spoil of war, right? So what's on his mind is that God has been victorious and he's going to dwell in this place, this lofty mountain. The primary view uh, theme in view here is God's victory. Um, and remember, that already took place at another time back at Mount Sinai. God was on a mountain. He was lofty. He was exalted. He was victorious. He just delivered his people from where? Egypt. And then he did it again in Jerusalem in this setting. Okay? So you've got Mount Sinai, Jerusalem, Yahweh ascending a mountain, Yahweh ascending a mountain. You've got a pattern, a trajectory being set. So now let's go back to Ephesians 4. How might Paul be using Psalm 68, 18 in Ephesians 4, 8? So what Paul does in, in 4, 8 is this. He, I think he's filled with the biblical themes just as this one, um, just like this one. And he makes use of that theme in Psalm 68, 18 by using some of the words, some of the words, some of the ideas associated with that theme of Psalm 68, 18, but not quoting it in totality and not even quoting it even directly, maybe? Can a New Testament writer borrow words and themes and phrases from the Old Testament without interpreting them? I think so. So clearly Ephesians 4 8 is, is, is not, it's not a, in all honesty, guys, it's not a direct, exact quote. 
Because there are, is a significant difference. What's the difference? Did you guys notice it? And I tell you what, this drives commentators nuts. Because if you are locked into, there's only two ways that the New Testament writer can use the Old Testament is if it's direct fulfillment and if it is an explanation of the commentary and neither one of those two things allows you to change the words. If you're going to take my words and say, now the fulfillment of them has come, you better not change my words. Or if you're going to explain my words that I spoke earlier, you better not change my words. You wouldn't want that. So then why are we in such a knot about this with God? Somehow these commentators go, well, Paul's using this obscure translation that uh, it's not really received, uh, it's give. What? If you lock yourself into that, then yeah, you're going to be a pretzel tied up in a knot. As Paul thinks on the victorious ascension of Messiah into the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age to come, if he's thinking about that, that ascension, that victorious ascension, how does it compare to the other ascensions of victory that Yahweh had in the past? How does it compare? It's just a little beyond because he didn't ascend a physical mountain. He what? He went into heaven, Messiah did. It dwarfs the victory of God achieved at Mount Zion. It dwarfed the, the victory of God at Sinai. That's not to say that they don't matter or that they're, they're, they're foolish. That's not it at all. But they are. Let's, let's put them in their proper place. The victory of Messiah that Paul is writing about, it towers over these other victories. So, quoting though that passage directly and specifically in totality doesn't actually work for this more glorious ascension that Christ has achieved. So I think Paul takes the theme of Psalm 68. And the theme is God's victory, evidenced in ascending a mountain. And he traces that line of trajectory out to show that Messiah's victory in his more glorious ascension is in that line, yes, but it's even greater than anything that has ever happened yet before. Are there similarities? Absolutely there are similarities between God's prior victories and this victory in Messiah. An ascension on high, captives being taken, and Ephesians 4 I think is probably a a reference to the, the rulers and the principalities who have been put down under his feet. There's all kinds of similarities like that. But there is a striking difference. The stark difference in this victory ascension is that Messiah gave gifts, not received gifts. So how are members of the body of Christ to view then the foundational gifts that he gave in chapter 4 verse 11? These are foundational gifts for the church, right? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Um, how are we to view these foundational gifts in relation to Psalm 68:18? They are directly connected to and coming from the one who accomplished this greatest ascension, victory ascension of all that Paul's been describing in Ephesians. God's victories on behalf of his people in the past which included victoriously ascending a mountain, 
All of those point to what? Look at this great one that has just taken place. He ascended not a mountain, but he ascended into the heavenly places. Somehow we're united with him in that ascension into the heavenly places. But the theme referenced is one that was accessed from Psalm 68. The words describing those prior victories, guys, can't fully express what Paul has in mind. The theme referenced is accessed, though, and since the words of Psalm 68:18 would fall short, just to take all of those words and say, that works for that victorious ascension, let's grab them all and use them exactly as they are for this victorious, it doesn't work because that's not what God did this time. So that's not what he's doing. But what he is doing is he's accessing a theme. And then, not only is he accessing a theme, he's actually under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is he not? And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he actually supplies new words for a new revelation which appropriately fits the victorious ascension of Christ into the heavenly places. That's huge. Is this an interpretation issue? Is, are we trying to figure out how Paul is interpreting this passage? Or is it an inspiration issue? Paul being motivated by a divine thought that's already been revealed combined with new divine thoughts that has not yet been revealed but is now being revealed. Is it an interpretation issue of the Old Testament or is it an inspiration issue going on for a brand new text to stand equally side by side with the Old Testament text? And who would have authority to change a text, not change the meaning of this, but change the text for a new revelation? Who would have authority to do that? You? Me? Nope. But one who is inspired by God to write new revelation. That he would say, take some of my wording. Except I want you to change it to say this. Not because we're going to change this old meaning. This one still stands. This is what happened. But this is what is happening now. What difference does that make in Ephesians 4? Again, we're, we're not just trying to study theologically or hermeneutically a subject, but what difference does it make in understanding Ephesians 4? The foundational gifts for the church did not come from a lowly place. Did they? Every neighborhood has a guy who tinkers around in his garage and makes stuff and then gives it to the kids. Our gifts did not come from that kind of guy. Every YMCA has a woman who does a little craft class and people go and they make stuff and it's gifts and you give it away to people. Our gifts did not come from such places. Our gifts came from the most exalted being who has ascended to the highest throne above all thrones. He is Messiah. And the giving of these gifts says more about him than they say about us. Look, when you and I give gifts, you give a gift thinking about the person you're giving it to. Nothing wrong with that. These gifts are given to make us think about how exalted Messiah is. These gifts only came through the massive exaltation of Messiah Jesus. The accent in Ephesians 4 on the gifts is not on the gifts. The accent's on the one who gave the gifts. 
You know what it would be like, the parallel? And then, Daniel, I'll get your question. The parallel would be a dad in his living room giving a gift to his son. And his son ripping it open, looking at it, and dropping it, and going and jumping into his daddy's lap. I love you, daddy. You are the greatest dad. That's more of the idea of what's going on in this passage. That's what Paul is stunned by. That's why he mentioned the gifts, and then in, in verse 7, and then he just went off on this thing of explaining who this ascended and descended one has and is. Daniel, what, what was on your mind? Yeah. That's a great question. I understand. And and look, there is no explanation that you can have on New Testament use of Old Testament that is flaw free. Um, I would say the way that I would answer that. Do you guys understand what his question is? He says it says, therefore it says you would think. Okay, that means whatever he's going to say next, it's got to be exactly the way that it, it occurred. Um, and and um, maybe maybe so. Um, part of what makes it difficult is everything that's capitalized is, includes the change, at least in the NAS. I don't know what ESV does with Old Testament quotes. Okay. Um, at some point, if it is what it says, y- y- your options are either the quotation shouldn't go all the way to the end of that last clause, and it should go on the first part. It should go only to right here and leave this off. Or, nope, he's quoting it just as it says, and I would rather live with having to explain. He is quoting what it says. However, he changes it. He just does. I mean, you can go to no text um, anywhere and find it this way. So I, what I want to say is, my, my explanation is, that therefore it says has to have a flexibility to it that doesn't lock Paul into an absolute direct quote all the way through, but allows him a flexibility to start with a quote and then change it possibly if he, under the inspiration of the Spirit, if that's what he's doing. Let's finish your thought. Yeah, I, just, I understand that because the reason is it, it, it's, it makes it easier just because of the context of what he's talking about. But just like sometimes how they, because of the language, yeah. you want to add stuff, it would be easier. It's like everyone says, and he said, I'm not even that person. But now he gives you something like Yeah, we want him, we want him to say, and by the way, I'm not quoting anymore, yeah. maybe, or right. now something, let, let me add to that. Yeah. But he didn't do that. And does he have to do that? I don't know. 
says so that when the reader is ah. what is the it now? Right. Is the it the full quotation? But it depends on what every formula is a little different. Every formula is a little different. Omri. How does the subordinate conjunction support the previous thing? Because the therefore is why is he using therefore? He almost as if that's why it says. That's why the scripture says because he just mentioned that Christ did therefore. Yeah, he's he's helping. He's accessing. The only way I know it to show how verse eight is related to verse seven. Main idea in verse seven: um, grace was given. Okay, grace was given to each one of us. Every single one of us in the body was that grace was given. Um, that grace was given according to the measure of Messiah's gift. Okay. Therefore, it says, he's accessing then this Old Testament truth, reality, theme, quotation, to substantiate that the grace was given. And he would have to change it. He would have to access part of the theme of victory and ascension, but then he would have to change it because those Old Testament texts don't say anything about giving. Doug. Then he wouldn't have needed. He would not have needed to change it to say give. He could have just said received. And by the way, you're with me, and I'm and I you're receiving. But his point is on that he's giving. Yeah. Well, like I said, we're opening up a, in one sense a can of worms for you to think about a new thing. Um, let let's, let me press on finish here, and then we can stand and talk if you guys want. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I got a couple blanks for you to fill in here. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul now wishes to show something different here with the gifts in Christ's victorious ascension. What is he trying to show? Christ gave gifts, not received gifts from the spoils of his victory. Paul's whole point is that Christ's victorious ascension is to be understood in close connection with the giving of gifts to believers in the church. So at the outset of Paul's discussion about gifts, again, he can't take his eyes off of the one who has ascended. Uh, he'll eventually get to the gifts in verse 11, but he couldn't take his eyes off that. So then, lastly, 
How then are Psalm 68, 18 and Ephesians 4 related to each other in Scripture? How should we think of them in Scripture? The Old Testament meaning in Psalm 68, 18 still stands as it is, as it was originally delivered. But now alongside it in the New Testament, in the canon of Scripture, stands another text that's similar to it. In some ways, that New Testament text is similar to the Old Testament text, but in other ways, it's significantly different. But they stand equally side by side. The New Testament meaning in Ephesians 4.8 does not reinterpret Psalm 68.18, nor is it even the explanation of Psalm 68.18, nor is it a fulfillment of Psalm 68.18. Under what circumstances could an Old Testament text actually be changed in the New Testament? Under what conditions could it be changed? I would say under this condition only. When the Holy Spirit inspired a writer to borrow part of the language or access a theme in the Old Testament text with a change for an entirely new inspired text. The Old Testament text can be changed only when it is being changed to write a new text and the Old Text still stands. And the only way that that can happen is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I think most of the New Testament, if, and maybe all of them, are more inspirational questions than interpretational questions. Meaning, what is the Holy Spirit inspiring the author to do versus what is the New Testament writer trying to interpret about the Old Testament? It may not be an interpretation question in every single one. A um, couple more statements, then we'll open it up for questions. Let me ask you guys this question. Uh, this question: Under what circumstance would um, a change to an Old Testament text ever be considered for reinterpretation? Under what circumstances could you change this text in order to reinterpret it? Come up with a new meaning. It's the New Testament. Okay, then, then you, I got a huge problem be, because you would never do that with your own words. Language does not work that way. If if the New Testament changes this, it must be because again, what are we constrained by? What you're going to find out is we're not constrained by a theology. We're constrained by a, a hermeneutic. By the way, language works. We're constrained by a hermeneutic that says um, each original text with its original meaning must stand. So if there's a change that is made, it is not because it's reinterpreting this meaning, saying, look guys, I know that you, when you heard this and you read this psalm in your worship, Israel, I know you thought it meant that Yahweh received gifts. I know you thought it meant that, but it doesn't mean that. It's been changed on you. It means actually um, he gave. As soon as they died... Before this Ephesians 4 passage ever came, as soon as they died, they found out God didn't mean what he said. That he actually had something else in mind. So under what circumstances can an Old Testament text be changed for the purpose of reinterpreting this one? I would say never. It can be accessed and changed to inspire a new text but not to reinterpret this one. When would you ever say to your kids, Dad, you said last week, blah, 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 but I say 
that what you said was blah, 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 bling. And what you meant when you said that was something different than what you originally... Would you, would you, would that stand for you? Language just doesn't work that way. We would not like somebody doing that with our words. But I think, I think we're too cavalier about God's word sometimes. So let me close it down there and, and, and say that, um, look, this is an introduction to a new idea possibly for you. Investigate it. Chase it. Um, it it's not without problems. It, 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 it's, it, look, I don't know of a way of interpreting that is without problems on the side of, of heaven. But if you want to ask some questions, you want to talk some more, we can certainly do that. Let me pray, and then you guys can get out of here, okay, if you need. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men and their patience. And I pray, God, that you would um, help us to honor your word as you desire it to be honored. And Father, that we would um, not have a higher standard for our own words and what people can and cannot do with them than we would have for yours. Um, And Father, I pray that um, we would walk humbly with each other and that you would be be glorified as we live with one another in our weakness and that, um, God, above all, what would be clear in our hearts and minds is we want your meaning to stand. We want your meaning to reign over us. And, um, Lord, we want to live in obedience to what you've revealed. We need you desperately for this. We thank you for this day. I thank you for these guys and their long commitment this year to build pray God that you would bless it and give us one more good time together in two weeks. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.